We're going to talk a lot about Easter and what that means. And I want to throw out just a question kind of here right at the beginning, really pretty basic question. And that is, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And I got kind of a new perspective on this a few years ago. Uh, you know, Julie and I have four kids, and our daughters are younger than our boys. And when they were in elementary school, there was a song that we listened to over and over again by Nicole Nordeman that was about uh, the day that Jesus died on the cross, about Good Friday. And it's a very dramatic song, and it's sung from a little girl's point of view as she's watching Jesus die. And so my mom was with us, and my mom uh, is not a believer, a wonderful lady, not a believer. And so uh, she was with us, and I just thought this would be so cool to have my girl sing this song for my mom, and always looking for that angle to try and present Jesus to her and so forth. And so, you know, we're, we're sitting in the car, and I turn it way up, and, and the girls are nailing it. Oh, my gosh. Kate and Nikki, they're singing beautifully with passion, two-part harmonies. I mean, tears are coming out of my eyes. I'm like, those are my girls. And so we listen to the whole song, it finally ends, and I look at my mom and I go, so what do you think about that? And she looked at me and she said, it's kind of morbid. <laughs> it's kind of morbid. She goes, you know, really, when you think about it, Kevin, I mean, you have your girls singing about this guy being tortured to death. What is that, Kevin? And, you know, I, I just never thought about it that way. I, it just never occurred to me that um, it is a little weird. It's a little weird to talk about somebody's death, especially a really gruesome death, and actually to make it the center of what you believe. It's the center of our religion. And you think about other great leaders, uh, leaders that have had a huge impact in maybe our country, like JFK, who died kind of a you know, a gruesome death, or uh, Martin Luther King, um, who died, and a lot of people believe his death had as much impact for the civil rights movement as, as his life did, um, and in those cases, we never talk or celebrate or commemorate, really, their death. I mean, we talk about their births, maybe. Uh, when you think about great religious leaders, when you think about Buddha or Muhammad or somebody like a Joseph Smith, even, uh, we never talk about their death. We never commemorate their death. And so what is it about Jesus where we say, you know what? It's all about his death. And I don't know if you've ever really sort of wondered about that question. If you're not really a churchgoer, maybe you've thought, yeah, that is kind of weird. I'm not, I don't really get that. Why would we talk so much about that? It's not like he didn't do great things in his life. And that's the question that we want to answer today because it's very basic to Easter. And it's very basic to our faith. So turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. We're going way back into the Old Testament. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We've got our Bible passer-outers here who would love to give you a Bible. If you need one, just raise your hand. Keep it up. They'll get you a Bible. Uh, Exodus chapter 32. And let me just set up what's happening here. It's sort of a familiar story probably to a lot of you. Uh, it is the story of the Exodus. It's of the Jews leaving Egypt in a really dramatic way. And so God, as you probably have watched the movies and heard the stories, God does a series of ten plagues and it's very dramatic. And Moses comes and says, let my people go. And finally, after ten plagues, the last being the Passover plague, where all the firstborn are, are killed, except those that have blood over their door mantles. Uh, and in a dramatic way, 
Finally, Pharaoh says, get out of here. And Moses takes the people and they go to the Red Sea and Pharaoh has a change of heart and they have this miraculous you know, passage through the Red Sea that's pulled back. And then the armies are wiped out and then they go into the desert and God starts providing food for them in a miraculous way. And it tells us that in about two months, they sort of are cruising around and they finally come to this huge mountain called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Horeb is the other name. Sometimes you hear it called Mount Horeb, but Mount Sinai. And they're at the bottom of the mountain. And the mountain, there's a lot of stuff happening on the mountain. Lots of, you know, sort of uh, lightning and thunder and smoke and all kinds of things. And, and Moses goes up on the mountain, right? And what does Moses get on the mountain? He gets the... Ten Commandments, you guys remember the movie, Charlton Heston up there, and they get the Ten Commandments, and it's an interesting thing. This story takes place while Moses is up on the mountain, okay? And um, while he's up there, he's up there for a while, and this is an important thing to understand really what the, what the Ten Commandments were all about. There's kind of a twofold purpose. One is that the Israelites have been in slavery for 400 years. They have not been a nation. They have not had to run themselves as a country. They've not had to worry about civil laws because they just follow whatever the Egyptians told them to do. And so they don't have any kind of working government, no policies about how to live. And so when Moses goes up on the mountain, it's just like kind of basic that any group of people, especially 2 million people, which is what they estimate were, were in this group, They've got to have some laws. They've got to have some policies, some, some ways to interact, regulations. And so Moses is given the Ten Commandments, but then he's given like 613 other laws that are very specific. And sometimes you wonder, you know, why did God go to all that deal to give all those really, 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 really specific laws, some that feel very archaic to us, they don't relate to us? Well, he was trying to give rules to the people that were living, you know, 3,000 years ago. And so that's what he's doing. But there's a second thing, and that is that God is basically giving us his moral code for how everyone should live. The Ten Commandments have been, you know, whether you're a Christian or not or Jewish or not, they've been pretty much regarded as those are the right ways to live. And God meant it to be sort of this, let me just tell you the best way to live. If you're going to relate to God, if you're going to relate to other people, this is the best possible way you could live. So anyway, that's, the story opens up. Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting these very dramatic decrees from God. It's about 40 days. He's been up there for a while. And then we read in chapter 32, starting in verse 1, it says these words. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, and you guys know who Aaron is, right? Aaron is Moses' brother, and he's also the high priest. You guys are so smart. Uh, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that uh, your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, made them into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool, uh, then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And this is a very, very significant thing that happens. And you can sort of picture why this may have not made 
either Moses or God very happy. Imagine this. God has just gone to this amazing, through this, these, this, this amazing series of miracles, really. There's no other way to put it. There is just no way you can deny that there's a supernatural element to them escaping Egypt. And they get through, and you know, this is only like two months ago. This is not like years and years and years and people have died and new people have been born and no one really remembers the story. This is like two months ago. Everybody that's there remembers walking through the Red Sea. Everybody remembers the plagues. And at this point they say, you know what? We need a God we can rely on. And in fact, not even a God. They call them the gods. And they shape this calf, this golden calf, an idol. And the calf is to represent, really, we know back then that the calf was one of the primary gods of the Near East, of Egypt. That they're all of a sudden going back and they're saying, it's not this Yahweh guy that Moses is telling us about it. It was actually one of our Egyptian gods, we think, that did this. And you can just see this is just a radical rebellion by these people. And then they say, and this fellow Moses, I mean, that sounds a little derogatory. It is derogatory in the original language. It's like, and who is this guy Moses? I mean, he brings us out here. Here we are at the bottom of a mountain. He's been gone for like more than a month. We don't know what's going on with him. We don't know about his God. We're going back to the old gods. We're going back to the old gods. And what you start to see is they are reversing the Exodus. Basically, everything that God has done to sort of bring them out, they're now pushing back and saying, well, we don't really believe that it was God, not this Yahweh. We don't believe that Moses is our leader. Soon they're going to be telling Moses, take us back to Egypt. They are reversing the whole Exodus, just you know, in light of miracle upon miracle. It's, it's really an amazing story. You see, this rebellion is pretty radical at this point. And so as these first two commandments are given. What's the first commandment? You should have no other gods, right? That's the first one. Are they breaking that? Absolutely. The second one, you should have no idols. Are they breaking that? Absolutely. And so as Moses is getting these laws, they're breaking the laws. So we see that this incredible rebellion is taking place. And then it says uh, in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, uh, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this, because uh, if you've seen the movies, it just looks like it's sort of a huge frat party, right? I mean, it just looks like there's a lot of drinking and a lot of singing and people are dancing and, you know, carousing and doing all kinds of things. Um, that's not really what was happening. I think all of those things were happening, but let's just picture this for a second. Uh, how many of you have ever been to the surf championships down at the pier at some point in your life? You've gone down and seen the surf championships, the U.S. Open? Okay, now, that is, you know, sort of the big frat party, right? You've got people sitting around, and they're, you know, doing all kinds of things, and they're enjoying each other, and it's kind of a big party. Were any of you there in 1986? And if you were, you'll remember it, because it wasn't a party, it was a riot. Anybody there? Okay, a few of you are there. See, I was down in Laguna Beach, and in Laguna, we're so cool. We would never have a riot in Laguna Beach, but that's okay. In Huntington Beach, you were having a, a riot that day. 
And, you know, when I, I was looking at just the scenery, the, some of the pictures of it, and it was out of control. I mean, you had women that were being attacked by men and clothes were being ripped off. And you had things that were being thrown and police cars that were being overturned. And they were trying to break into the lifeguard station and set it on fire. And the police were coming. They were being pelted by rocks and all kinds of things. I mean, it was an ugly, ugly, ugly scene. And this is really more of what's going on. And one of the ways that we know is that when Moses starts coming down the mountain and Joshua says, because he's, he's sort of halfway up the mountain waiting for Moses, and Joshua says something's happening in the camp. He doesn't say, I think that they're parting really heavily. He says, there's a war going on there. I mean, what he's hearing is something way beyond a party. It sounds like a war is going on. And so one of the things that's really interesting, and this is so important, this is just a principle for us to get, is that when we rebel from God, when we push God away, when we say, God, we don't want you to be God. We have other gods. We've got other ways that we're going to do it. We're not following your commandments. We don't care about what you say. The thought that we can just sort of in isolation push God away and that it doesn't have any impact on our morality or it doesn't have any impact on how we treat each other is absurd. It always does. They all always go hand in hand. Our relationship with God and the reverence we give him and our, our desire to follow him always has immediate consequences, immediate action out into how we act morally or how we treat other people. And so, you know, as the Israelites are pushing God off, it makes total sense that all of a sudden immorality is just flying out the door. All of a sudden people are getting hurt and, you know, the weaker are being taken advantage by the stronger and there's all kinds of things happening in the camp. And it's a good thing for us to remember is, is you can't just push away God and think it doesn't have an impact in the rest of your life. It certainly does. It absolutely does. And I think that if you sort of think through your life, you would say, yeah, I pretty much could attest to that. That pretty much is my story. In seasons where I've pushed God away, I wouldn't call those like high moral times in my life or the times I treated other people really well. And so we see that principle really being drawn out here. As we, finish, as we follow along on the story now, cut back up onto the mountain, and uh, God is not happy with what's happening. And so he says these words. He says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. We started in verse 9. And they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now, just that last phrase, I'll make you into a great nation, don't want to pause a long time there, but really, this was an amazing promise. These people that had caused Moses so much grief, they were going to cause him a lot of grief into the future. God basically says, I'll wipe them all out, and I'll, I'll build a nation off of you and your family. I'll just start the whole thing over, and Moses, you'll be the guy. And so it's sort of an interesting uh, you know, sort of offer that God is giving here. Moses isn't going to take him up on it, and I think God was testing Moses to see what he would do with this. But the thing that I want us to focus on is all of a sudden God's not referring to the Israelites as my people. In fact, this is noticeable. Up to this point, it's my people, even my firstborn, my love. And here he calls them those people. And that is ominous. All of a sudden God is saying, 
hey, they've, they've gone past a line here. This is a real problem. And we watch for, for uh, as this thing's unplaying, for the first time since they've, they've left, God becomes angry at them. Now, this word for anger is a word called wrath. And uh, wrath is kind of a Bible word, right? You don't hear wrath a lot unless you watch, you know, like Star Trek, the wrath of Khan. But, you know, wrath is sort of an archaic word. We don't use that a lot. And it's, it's a misunderstood word. And I think that, you know, we get worried about wrath. And we worry about God being a God of wrath. And we go, really? God's a God of wrath? And we see in the story that, you know, the people cross a few lines. Yeah, but hey, they were slaves for a long time. Moses has been gone. This seems a little petty of God to get all worked up about this little thing. You know, is God really like that? Does God really get mad when we cross a line a little bit? I mean, we aren't perfect. We admit that we're not perfect. Why is God so angry about this? And the word wrath is really a strong word. And it's not like this was the only place in the Bible so we can explain it away in a million other places where he's just loving and never gets angry. The word wrath, there's 20 words in the Hebrew for the word wrath. And there are things like indignant, but there are things like to vomit you out. I mean, there's some really strong, to snort at someone. I think that's sort of cute. You know, God would snort at people, like a horse snorts at something that it's mad at. And so you have like these images, and it's like unbearable to him. It's like, it, it's visceral to him. I mean, it is a hate as deep as hate can be. That's what wrath means. Wrath does not mean God's a little miffed. Wrath is a very, very strong word, and it's used over 600 times in the Old Testament. So it's not just like this minor theme. It is a major theme in the Old Testament that God gets angry when he sees rebellion, when he sees immorality, when he sees people hurting other people, God gets wrathful. And it's a very, very serious thing. You can see here that the people, these two million people, they don't even know it, but their lives are hanging in the balance at this point. Because God's like, I am fed up with these people. I'm fed up with what they're doing. So we see this sort of amazing thing taking place during this time. And uh, I want us to talk for a second just about this notion of wrath. Because uh, a lot of us, again, feel very uncomfortable talking about that part of God. First, let me tell you, it is not an attribute of God. Wrath is not an attribute. It is a response. In other words, when there is nothing for God to be angry at, he won't be angry anymore. So it can't be an attribute of God because attributes last forever. It's a response. And it actually comes out of two attributes of God. One of them, believe it or not, is love. And parents, you can relate to this. How do you feel when someone threatens your child? Okay? Parents, you've all had someone. Maybe it was the bully down the street. Maybe it was another parent. Maybe your child threatened itself. You know, it did something really lame. How do you feel? Are you like, oh, no big deal? Yes? No. How do you feel? Angry, really angry. I remember one time my dad said, I don't remember this, I was too young, but we lived on a second floor, and um, I went, I was just learning how to walk, and there was this ledge on the outside of our second floor 
balcony or something, and I started walking down the ledge, and it was like a 20-foot fall. And my parents are talking in the kitchen, and I walk past this fixed glass window and start waving at them. And I'm standing on a ledge, and my dad is looking at me, and he was terrified of heights. And, uh, and so he crawled out on the ledge, I mean, just as terrified as he can be, trying to not upset me so I wouldn't take a step back. And he finally grabbed me and pulled me in. You know what was the first thing he did? Yes, he spanked me. I mean, I thought he'd be relieved. You know, he almost killed me right there. But, you know, it's, there's just this thing, something that we love is threatened, and we react in a very passionate, emotional, even wrathful way when that happens. And the second part, the second attribute of God's is his justice, is there has to be justice for things that are evil and wrong in the universe. And it's just, it's the way he's wired. He's wired to look at things and say, I cannot let evil stand. I cannot let rebellion or immorality or people treating each other in really terrible ways, I cannot let it stand. And that really is what wrath is. Wrath is God's outrage and punishment for evil. And he is constantly working against evil in the universe. His goal is to wipe out from every nook and cranny every bit of evil, rebellion, immorality, every bit of brutality. He wants to wipe it out. He is constantly working against that. He doesn't stand idly by and just say, well, people will be people. It's just, you know, what can I do? And, and, you know, as long as it doesn't really bother me that much, I guess I'm not going to get involved. That's not how he feels. Uh, one of the, the huge, most huge problems right now in our world is human trafficking. And I just want to give you this as an illustration so that you understand why God gets mad about this. Because I want you to get mad about this. Do you know that it is a $10 billion a year business in the world. It is the second largest illegal business in the world. Right now they estimate somewhere between 12 and 27 million girls and women are slaves and they are primarily being used for sexual trafficking. They are taken across international borders very often, sometimes not. We have 50,000 slaves brought into our country, the United States, every year. Bad news. Let me make it very personal to you. I was reading the story of a guy who decided he was going to do something about it. So he traveled to Southeast Asia. I think it was Cambodia. And uh, he was working undercover. And he was taken to a brothel. And he looked in. And the way this brothel was set up is that men could come in and they could look at girls that were between the ages of 13 and 15 that were in this room, and uh, all the girls had on red shirts with numbers on them. It was the way to identify them. And they could look, and they could make their choices about which little girls, which girls they would take. And so he was looking in there, and he noticed that the girls were just empty shells. They were sitting there watching, like, TV cartoons. These girls, uh, there was no life in their eyes. They were totally defeated. They looked, you know, they looked just lost. And there was one girl, though, that looked way different. She stared with defiance at the men that were looking through the window. She didn't have her eyes down. And as this guy looked, he thought to himself, all the rest of these girls have given up. 
but not this girl. This girl still has fight. And her number was 146. And that day, he couldn't do anything about it. But he was part of leading a raid back to that brothel later. And they rescued all the girls. But girl 146 wasn't there. And to this day, he doesn't know what happened to girl 146. All he knows is that it inspired him to do something about it. And here's what he says about the emotions he felt that day. All these emotions began to reek, uh, begin to wreck you, break you. It is agony. It is aching. It is grief. It is sorrow. The reaction is instinctive. It's intuitive. It is visceral. It releases a wailing cry inside of you. It elicits gut-wrenching indignation. It is unbearable. That's exactly how God feels when he sees evil. That's exactly how he responds. The Bible makes it clear. It's an emotional reaction. It is visceral. It is gut-wrenching to him. He hates it. He hates evil. He sees what it does to those things that he loves, and he hates it. And we would want a God that responded no other way, right? That's exactly how we want God to respond to evil. We want him to be that way. Now, I put on your outline some of the ways that God's wrath works out. So sometimes it's active. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes something happens and God immediately stops it. Uh, the problem is we don't know when that occurs. I mean, we presume to know. Sometimes, uh, did you remember when uh, Hurricane Katrina hit? And you heard people saying this is God's judgment on New Orleans because it's such an immoral city. And people feel like they're speaking for God. And here's the big problem. We don't know if it was or wasn't a judgment from God. We just don't know. But it sure is presumptuous of us to think that along maybe with some of the immorality that happened in New Orleans, that all the little kids that were there, all the families that were there, all the people that really were just like us, they got wiped out too. So why would we say that this is God's judgment when we would think, and we're saved from it here? We have to be really careful about assigning wrath and judgment to God in particular circumstances. We just don't know. The Bible makes it clear sometimes when we read a Bible story, but we don't know. We've got to be so careful about that because, you know, Jesus was asked one time about it. His disciples saw in the, you know, Jerusalem Herald or whatever newspaper they were reading, they saw that a tower had fallen down and it had killed 18 people. And they said, were those people more sinful than anyone else, Jesus? And he said, no. You better watch out. Don't stand next to any towers yourself. You're just as sinful as they are. I mean, that's what he says. He says, don't be presumptuous. Don't attribute to God judgment when you don't know what's going on. So it is sometimes active. Sometimes it's immediate. We just don't know. We might be able to discern it sometimes in ourselves if we've done something wrong and there's immediate consequence. The second thing is that it does happen in consequences. And God set up this law of sowing and reaping. And it's just the way the world works, that if you do things that are wrong, you're going to get negative consequences. 
It doesn't happen 100% of the time, but the majority of the time it's true. If you drink like a fish, you're going to get liver cancer. You know, if you're a liar, people aren't going to trust you. If you spend like a fool, you're going to go into debt. These are ways that retard bad behavior because the consequences, the way God set up the universe, are the consequences push against you when you do something that's wrong. And then we're also told that there's going to be a future when judgment does come completely, when the wrath of God is finally satisfied. And that will be the time when God says, all right, all evil disappears at this time. All evil is punished. All evil goes away. We're going to have a creation with no more evil in it. Now, there's two bits of news when we realize God's wrath. There's the good news and the bad news. And it uh, reminds me of a little story because I've been a little intense here, so you get a joke now. There was a captain of one of those ancient warships where all the guys are rowing underneath in the galley, you know, those old warships. Yeah, you guys are going to play with me? Or are you guys just so like, he's going to talk about God's wrath again and I can't handle this. All right. And, uh, and so the, the headmaster comes down and he says, hey, I've got good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is the captain says you're going to get double rations tonight. And all the men go, yay! The bad news is the captain wants to go water skiing. Okay, that's, that's as good as you get. Sorry, now we're back to wrath. Sorry. If you guys responded better, I had another joke, but whatever. Okay. All right. So here's, here is, there is good news, and here's the good news. The Bible tells us that God is slow to anger that he doesn't just fly off the handle at everything, that when we do something wrong, it is not immediate, generally, on how he reacts to that. And that's good news. We read in the story in Exodus, it says uh, when Moses talks to God and God finally decides not to wipe out Israel, it says, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And this is good news for us because let me just tell you, if he didn't act that way, if he was not patient, if he was one of those kinds of people where when they get angry, they just settle it right there, we'd all be gone. I mean, it would be bad news for all of us because all of us have done something wrong. All of us have done something evil. You know, you, you might say, well, I don't, you know, I don't really put evil in the category of what I do. You know what? It's all grades. It's all grades. So when you talk really harshly to somebody and hurt their feeling, you don't want to call it evil but it is. When you cheat someone else, you don't want to call it evil, but it is. And the good news is God is slow to anger. In fact, we read in Romans 9.22. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and bring that up on the screen if we can. Let's read it together. Together, it says this. Together now. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? I mean, that is an incredible thing about God, is he sees everything that happens. And in some cases, we're like, why doesn't God do something? Like on the human trafficking, why doesn't God do something about that? Or the stuff that's going on in Uganda, or, you know, terrible things, Bernie Madoff and all these kinds. Why doesn't God just strike them dead before they can even get off the ground? But here's the bad news. If he does it there, why wouldn't he do it to us when it's our time? Maybe it's not as major 
but it's in the same category. And the good news is God says, I will be patient. And that's good news. But there's some bad news too. And that is that by nature, God's wrath comes on us. And I know we sit in church and we think that is really bad news for all those people that are out there. God's wrath. But the Bible is pretty clear that by nature, naturally, we're all under God's wrath. In fact, we read in Ephesians 2.3, uh, let's read this together too. Ephesians 2.3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And the Bible looks at us, and God looks at us, and God says, you know what? You do not behave the way that I created you to behave. There is evil that comes out of you. And you say, no, 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 I'm not evil, and I don't hate God. You know, the Bible calls us by nature again. He says we are all enemies of God. You're like, I'm not an enemy of God. Maybe some of you are sitting here, and you're thinking, I don't even know if I believe in God. Why would I be an enemy of God? But the reality is the way that we behave, the way that we carry on, every time we push against God because God says, you know, I think you should do it this way, and we say, you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. Where do you get off telling me what to do? You ever feel that? I feel it all the time. Every time you do it, you know what the Bible says? You're acting like an enemy to God. The Bible says that we're hostile to God. That we do things that are hostile, that when we don't get our way, when God doesn't play by our rules, when it's like, I can't believe, God, you've done this to me again, and we get mad at him, that we're actually hostile to God. And the reality is, you know, we don't stand just sort of in this neutral corner with God. It just, that's not the picture that the Bible gives. The picture that the Bible gives is not that we're the worst we can be. I mean, that's not it either. We're not the worst we can be. But this idea that we're all just right in line with God and we love God and we want what's best for God, that's not the way the Bible portrays it. And so the Bible says we're in the situation where if something doesn't happen, wrath is going to fall. Because here's the bad news about evil if God's going to wipe it out. It's in us. It's in us. There's no way to wipe out evil unless it gets out of us somehow. And so that is the dilemma. And when we talk about why Jesus had to die, that is the central concern that the Bible portrays, is that all of us deserve wrath. And somehow God's got to figure this out. Now, in this story with Moses, I want to just tell you kind of an interesting thing that happens. Moses is on the mountain, and he's trying to figure things out with God. And so he comes up with a plan. Moses has a plan as to how he could save the people. And he had just learned about sacrifices. God had just been teaching him about, hey, you know, every once in a while I want you to sacrifice an animal as an atonement, as paying the penalty for the sins of the people. And so Moses' wheels start turning. And he, walk, and he comes back up on the mountain because he's come down, he's confronted the people, then he comes back up onto the mountain with this plan. And it's interesting to note, we don't pick it up because we don't read Hebrew, but he's actually, he's like faltering as he's suggesting this plan. This plan makes him so nervous, it's so emotional to him that 
it's captured in here. He's not writing it right. It's not an even flow of what he says. But here's what he says in verse 30. He says, the next day, this is Moses' plan for how we're going to deal with the evil of the people and how we can get rid of it. And he says, the next day, Moses said to the people, "Um, you have committed uh, a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Atonement means pay the penalty for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. In other words, they've pushed you away. But now please forgive their sin. And then he says this. And and we don't get it perfectly here, but really here's what he says. If you will do that, you can blot my name out. I will be the atonement. I will be the sacrifice for these people. Instead of wiping them out, wipe me out. Take me as the substitute. And God doesn't do it. He relents, but he does not take Moses as the substitute. And you know why? Because Moses couldn't be the substitute. Because Moses broke the Ten Commandments. Moses had murdered somebody. Moses was not unblemished. He was not perfect. His sacrifice would not have made a difference. It was noble of him, but it was completely ineffective. God said, I can't accept that. You can't pay for that sin. And it wasn't until centuries later that God said, but I have someone who will. And we read in Romans about Jesus these words. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This becomes God's solution to our problem of evil and how it must be punished. This is God's solution. Any of us that think, hey, I'll be okay. I'll roll the dice. I'll stand before God on my record. And you know, if he's going to be petty about it, if he's going to pick every little thing, maybe I'll be in some trouble. But, you know, if he can just be a little bigger than that, I'm going to be okay. I'm just fine doing it on my own. We do not want to make that mistake. We don't want to go there. Because God is absolutely committed to wiping out evil in this world. And if you stand with evil inside of you, it will not go well. And it doesn't matter what you think about it. It really doesn't. It only matters what God thinks. And here's the thing. 
He's provided a way out. He's provided the substitute. He said, I've brought someone. You don't have to bear the wrath on your own. In fact, it's called the great exchange. God says, listen, here's the great exchange. You give all of your sin, all of your evil, all of your immorality, all the crummy things that you've done in your life, all the things that deserve punishment, even you would say, I should be punished for that. You give all of that to Jesus. You put it all on him. You let him pay the penalty. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus deserved to die when he died? What do you think? How many would say yes? Because it's kind of a trick question. You know what? He absolutely did. You know why? Because when he died on the cross, he was the most miserable, worthless, terrible sinner this world had ever seen. Because all of the sins of all of us were on him. He actually took them on himself. He was the worst of murderers. He was the worst child abuser. He was, you know, the, the greediest person that could have ever been. The, the worst that the world has ever shown was all in Jesus when he died on the cross. That's the thing we don't understand. It wasn't like this minor problem. It's part of the reason Jesus was not super excited about going to the cross is because all of the wrath of God would fall on him in a justified way because an exchange was made. And you gave him all of your stuff. And he willingly took it and he said, I will take it on me. Because in doing so, I will give you my righteousness. And when God sees you, he won't see the evil. There won't be any evil. In Jesus, we are righteous. We are pure. Here's the good news. You, if you are a believer, if you've accepted Jesus, if you've made the exchange, you never, ever have to fear God's wrath. It will never come against you. It was settled on the cross with Jesus. You will never be on the bad side of God's wrath, ever. You can come to him in boldness. You don't need to feel guilty about your sin. You don't need to worry that he's going to hammer you at some time in the future because he, he's punishing you, you don't have to worry about that. It was taken care of. It is the most amazing truth of Easter. It is why Jesus died. But now I want to say something to those of you that have not figured this out yet, or you have not made this decision yet. You're still holding back. You've sort of thought, I can make do. I'll figure it out myself. I can stand before a holy God and it will be okay. I know that it takes humility. I know that it's admitting that you can't do it yourself. And we're Americans. We like to do everything ourselves. But this is the invitation that God gives. Accept Jesus' death as a substitute for yours. Accept the fact that Jesus will get the wrath of God, and not you. Accept the fact that it's not your righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness that makes you clean and pure. Accept that, and you will be saved. And for some of you, that needs to happen today. 
because it's been clearly articulated. This will be your best chance at making the decision. Don't think, oh, well, I'll make it later. That sounds kind of compelling. That's sort of interesting. But, you know, I don't know. I want to think about it. You know what? This is your clearest moment. If you don't make it now, why do you think you'd make it any other time? You can make that decision right now, right today. Easter will be a completely different celebration for you if you do. So here's what I'd like you to do. Would you just close your eyes and bow your heads? And I'm not going to ask you to stand or to say anything out loud. You don't need to do anything like that. I just want to pray for you if this is a decision that you're making right now. You can just, I will say it out loud, you say it in your heart. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this truth. God, we thank you for your wrath. It actually is the way things should be. You should destroy evil. In fact, we count on the fact that you will make things right in the future and that evil will not stand. And so right now, we just thank you for that. Even though it's hard for us sometimes, we thank you that evil will be rooted out. And Jesus, right now, as we sit here, we recognize the fact that you have offered this incredible exchange. We step into it, and we accept it. Thank you that you died in my place. Thank you that you bore God's wrath. Thank you that you have made things right. And now I sit here as a child of God, holy and blameless and adopted into your family. And there is nothing that could ever happen that would separate me from you, that I never have to fear your wrath or your punishment, that you will never turn your back on me. That is the guarantee of the cross, Jesus, and we thank you. We thank you so much. And so now accept our prayers of submission. And Jesus, thank you for welcoming, welcoming us into your family. We are now saved. Thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's people said, Amen.